Today's scripture reading comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 7, verses 1 through 13. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea, because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And now there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said he is a good man, others said, no, he is leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Yes, here we go. <laughs> Probably heard of the attacks on Israel this past week by Hamas. I don't know if any of you have had a chance to watch the news or look at some of the happenings there. And there's just a lot of terrible things that are happening there, especially against women and children, the elderly, the infirm. And I don't know if you realize, but it this attack occurred on the Jewish holiday of Sukkoth, which is also called the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths. And actually, it's the exact time that Jesus is here in uh, John chapter 7. So sovereignly, the Lord has just brought this to bear right at this incredible moment. And it's supposed to be a time of real celebration and feasting. It's one of the three largest celebrations of the Jewish calendar year. And yet, in the midst of that celebration, if you can imagine, there's so much horror and tragedy. As well, you might not see it in this passage, but very similarly, there is a, a lot of darkness in this passage where it's meant to be a time of feasting, but instead it's a, it's a time of sorrows. And it's not something that was happenstance. It was predicted to be so. We see in the book of Isaiah, chapter 53, verse 6, that Isaiah says about Jesus, the Messiah, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And Jesus' death, we know, is a sorrowful death, but I don't know if we dwell enough about the fact that his life was a sorrowful life. And so much of the sorrows that he faced personally was not just simply an attack against him. It's meant in some way to personify all of the sorrows that he would bear for our sake, for the many different disappointments, tragedies, sadnesses, miseries, that sometimes we face. And we live in the Bay Area, it's a very comfortable place to live, but God is not a God simply over San Ramon. He is a God of this world. 
And over this world, there are many terrible things that happen. Again, all you need to do is just turn on the news and you see it. And the Lord, who can both rejoice when someone turns to him, and we're told that all of heaven rejoices when someone turns to Christ. And yet, concurrently, when there's murder, when there's rape, when there's all sorts of injustices, God mourns with that. How he does that at the same time, I do not know. Truly in that way, he is God. So what I want to do is look at John 7, 1 through 13, and see it through the eyes of Jesus, that he is a God of sorrows. And perhaps some of you are experiencing that today in some fashion or form. Sometimes it's the sorrow of a miscarriage. Sometimes it's the sorrow of rejection, of maybe someone at school picking on you, a bully. Maybe it's the sorrow of being rejected at a job, or maybe it's difficulty in your marriage. Maybe it's the sorrow of not having perfect health or a healthy child. There are many sorrows that you either have faced, are facing, or will face And how do we navigate all of that? The way forward is to look at the man of sorrows. So what we're going to look at first is the death threat that he received in verse 1, the cynicism that his family had towards him in verses 2 to 6, and then third, the hatred that he faced from the world in verses 7 to 13. And I hope you see that through this, most of all, he experienced all of this for you and for me. First, the death threats. Verse 1 says, After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. So Jesus intentionally decides to avoid a place where people wanted to do harm to him. And to follow Christ, as we see later on in his life, was dangerous. It was so dangerous that people ran away from him, his own followers. But Jesus lived with this for pretty much his whole public ministry. As long as he was a public person, he was under threat. I don't know if any of you have ever experienced the death threat, but it happens. Actually, the more notoriety you get, the more public you become, you understand that the more that anyone can simply point a gun, write a letter or an email, do something. And when that happens... You can't help but feel fear and dread. It impacts your whole family. Everyone is deathly afraid, literally. And so when I consider Jesus facing and encountering such threats, again, so much so so that he very intentionally moves towards another direction. And by the way, I think this does say something about the fact that sometimes to be a Christian means there is wisdom involved doesn't mean you always throw yourself into the line of fire. There is a discernment that is made where there are occasions where to be in Christ means you intentionally put yourself in danger. Sometimes the Lord does call us to preach the gospel, even when it is most dangerous, even when it possibly costs us our life. But it doesn't mean that we just simply, without discernment, do whatever we want to do, saying, well, this is for the Lord. It's not how it works. So here we see an instance where Jesus, because he knows that his time has not yet come, he intentionally decides not to place himself into threat, but avoids this feast initially. 
I think when we consider this concept of sorrow, it just hits me so hard. I, again, I was watching the news uh, for the past couple of days, or yesterday when there was the you know just the Hamas invading and all of that. And if you've had a chance to watch the news, it I, I couldn't help but think, what would have happened if this was my daughter, my wife? And then my son is about to go into war and to battle. And this is literally what's happening right now in the state of Israel. How difficult. You would be wondering, God, are you there? Are you, are you still good? We sang a song that said, God, you're so good. But maybe as you're singing that song, it's a hard song to sing. We used to sing this song, that song, God is so good, whenever our first daughter was born and she, she had a hard time sleeping. She was colicky. And we would sing that song regularly. It was our song for our child. But you know, when you reflect on the words, it's so simple. God is so good. And the question is, is he good? Sometimes we sing it, we don't even think about it. Sometimes we actually wonder. Because if you are facing real trial, and some, you don't know how much time you have left, some have chronic pain. And pain is terrible. It, it's miserable. You don't really appreciate your health until you slowly start losing it. And when you start losing it, you ask the question, is God so good? What about when... You've been praying for someone to come along who will be your husband, your wife. You've been faithful to the Lord. Is God still good when that prayer isn't answered the way you want? We have all these dreams for our lives, for our family, for security, for comfort. Sometimes just simply to be. And yet, the real question is, God so good? Is he there? Is he faithful? When we read verse 1, I don't want us to pass over that so quickly. Because verse 1 is Jesus' theme verse, you might say. It was the end of his life. It, his whole life was about people trying to kill him. And in the end, they succeeded. I mean, consider that. We do not worship a God who lived his whole life with prosperity and freedom from any type of danger, comfort, all that we have is not what Christ experienced. But it's because of our brokenness, because of the fact that things do not go so well that when we turn to him, we see the man of sorrows. We understand him. We know who he is. And we're so thankful for the cross, most of all. Again, I don't think the cross means as much to us when all things are good. But when things are really, really down, that's when the gospel hits home so strongly and the cross matters so much. And that's when we're so thankful that Jesus is a man of sorrows. He understands us in ways that we never could be known other than a crucified Savior. So these death threats, he sovereignly knew about them. He knew that he was placing himself into dangerous situations. And regardless of that, he went forward because he knew what we were about, where our brokenness lies. 
where our trials rest. The second way in which Jesus experiences these sorrows is through his own family. The family is one place that you would expect if there's going to be supporters, it's going to be your own family. It's going to be brothers and sisters and fathers and mothers, children. Is there any type of betrayal greater than when you experience it from your own family, your own flesh and blood? So to have someone against you, antagonistic towards you, scoffing you, and it's your own siblings. Now, granted, we have siblings that do scoff us, that often conflict with us. But when push comes to shove, really, that's when your family truly circles the wagons and you're, you're together. But that's not what Jesus faced. In verses 2 to 5, John records for us, now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing, for no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world, for not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus had lived, let's say, up to his public ministry, 30 years with his brothers. They had seen him for most of his life, from infanthood all the way through the teen years, the young adult years, up to 30 years old, approximately around there. And so we're told by John in the Gospel of John later at the very end of this gospel that all of Jesus' works, his miracles, his teachings, they're not recorded in the Gospel of John. He says that actually, and probably hyperbolically, but pretty much there's a, a semblance of truth to it, is that if they were to have recorded every single thing, not even all the world's books could hold them. So his brothers surely saw some things that he had done, maybe miraculously, that no one else had ever seen. And of course, he never sinned. Now, what a challenge to have a brother who never sinned, never said one ill word, not even an ill thought. You can understand in some way why his brothers might not have the best appreciation for their brother, Jesus. But I also think that we have to consider this idea that Jesus' brothers, they weren't, they weren't just antagonistic. They, they didn't believe him. They doubted who he was. And so when he, I mean, that's the greatest challenge. A prophet is not honored in his hometown, as Jesus says. Those people who had grown up with him could not see him as he is. And I think we all can understand that. One of the things that uh, I would suggest respectfully to all of us is for those of us who are, you know, like some of your kids are being raised in the church. So I have seen many of your children when they're very young. And then by the time they hit adulthood, 18, and then even post-marriage, it is very hard to not see that, that person as a child again. It's one of the great challenges of having those who are young adults and adults in the church. And our instinct is always say, oh, I remember when I, you, you were so little and you were a brat and, you know, I changed your diapers. And of course, that now 30-year-old is thinking, I don't want to be seen as a child anymore by you. So I do want to suggest that 
you know, for those, if you meet someone who is older, whom you knew as a little child, guard against saying, oh, you were, you did this and you were a little, you know, I don't know, whatever it is. Because that's probably what Jesus faced from his own brothers. I knew him when he was like this. How is he saying he's the Messiah? So there was a lot of cynicism he faced. And then they're saying almost scoffingly, well, if you really want to be somebody, why are you here in Galilee? Galilee is, it's like, okay, I'm sorry, but it's like West Virginia, Appalachia, you know? It's the backwater of the world, of the country. The place you should be is New York City. If you really want to be somebody, make yourself special. Be, go to New York. Uh, I used to say San Francisco, but maybe a different story. Go to Chicago, San Francisco. Don't stay in that Hicksville place. I mean, that's essentially what they're saying to Jesus because they're mocking him. They're saying, you know what? Yeah, if you're going to be special, do it where you're going to be known. Show yourself to the world. That's sort of the mantra of our world, show yourself. Make sure everyone knows who you are. Be famous. Be significant. Be someone important. And it happens in all forms. Um, about a month ago, Sue and I were at this restaurant. So it was sort of a unique restaurant. And we were waiting online. It was a long line to get in. And as we were waiting, there was this teenager who had set up a tripod for her iPhone and had put her phone, what seemed like what's called burst mode. I don't know if you know what that is. And she was standing, so she was online, but she decided to, like there was a brick wall and she took these, she was had these poses and she was posing while the, her shots were going. So it was like, and every second she'd be moving and going to different poses. I can't even do it. I'm embarrassing myself. <laughs> She would go into different poses, and I'm thinking, what is she doing? I didn't ask her, but I have a feeling she's trying to be Instagram famous, be an influencer, trying to get restaurants known, saying, I'm at this place and doing this. It was very much the mentality of everyone around was trying to have their fame to show yourself, to be known. And that's our world, and that's exactly what the disciples were saying. I mean, the disciples, his brothers are saying. Be known. If you're going to be, if you're going to say you're special, if you're going to teach this way, then get yourself out there. Essentially, hey, if you're going to be famous, at least we could benefit off of it. Now, whether you're doing that or maybe we might not think I need to be famous, but maybe we're saying, I want my child to be famous. I don't know if you remember, um, some of you are older, you might remember John Bonet Ramsey. She was a six-year-old girl. She performed in uh, beauty contests, and she was murdered. There was a big murder mystery as to who murdered her. But they would show these video clips of her on the catwalk going down in this six-year-old beauty contest, fully made up, hair like a like a beauty queen. I remember watching that thinking, what parent would put their child and put them up for show like this? Uh, who would do that? Because they wanted some sense of significance through their child. Oh, if I want my child to be known as beautiful, 
especially a daughter. But what type of message does that show to that little girl at six years old? But may I say that it's quite possible, parents, that we might not be putting our kids into beauty contests, but maybe we are putting our kids up for show, saying to the world, I want my child to be someone special. And the way that we make that known is they have to be MVP. And if they're not, then I'm going to give them a scolding. They have to win this art contest or this dance contest. They have to have a 4.0 and be valedictorian. Something or some way. And when everyone says, oh, whose child is that? Suddenly it's, that's my child. That says a lot about me. I am that wonderful parent that everyone wants to model themselves off of. See, we don't, we might scoff at the parents of John Benet Ramsey, but maybe if we're really a little bit honest with our own hearts, we have the same heart. And we have the heart of the brothers of Jesus who say, show yourself to the world, be someone significant. That sense of self-promotion and boasting, that's not just a human idea, it's Satan's idea. He did this as well he, for himself, as we see in the Old Testament, but we see this as well when he tempts Jesus. In Matthew 4, 8 through 9, Satan says to Jesus, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and the glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. And I tell you that many people have taken Satan up on his offer. All of these I will give you. All you need to do is just surrender your heart to me. Sell yourself to me. And I really want to ask, are you in a place where you're thinking, I want everything. I want fame. I want comfort. I want security. I want to be known. If I can just get that, I will sell myself. I will worship whatever it takes. Significance is a terrible danger if it's found outside of Christ. When we place our hope in it, and it doesn't matter what we place our hope in, it could be even pastoral ministry, preaching and teaching. It's a danger for people like me who are in, in front of others talking about the gospel, but actually, in my heart, hiding it. There was a pastor by the name of Darren Patrick. He was a very successful megachurch pastor. He planted a church. It grew fast, wrote many books, um, spoke at conferences, but he fell. And that's not an uncommon story, sadly. And then after repentance, he was restored but not much long after, he actually committed suicide, took a gun to his head. And you think to yourself, how does that happen? Someone who has proclaimed Christ, has preached the gospel. A couple of weeks before he took his own life, he was on a podcast, and this is what he said. I was spending a lot of energy creating and sustaining my image. It's so subtle. I'm trying to influence people for the gospel. You have to have a social media presence. You have to speak at conferences. I stopped pursuing friendships. Another way to say that, I stopped being known, and that was the beginning of the end. When you stop being known and all of your life is being known, 
suddenly you feel empty. That's why so many people after working for their whole life when they retire, or for some of you who are in the stage where you've invested everything in raising your children, going to this activity and that activity and this, making sure that they do this in school and then suddenly they go to school, they're married, they're gone and the house is empty and your significance is gone. Or maybe you're preaching in front of people and then you realize it's nothing, it's gone. You know what's left? The darkened heart. And for Darren Patrick, it was a gun to his head as a pastor. This is the danger of trying to be somebody special apart from Christ. See, in Christ, I know that even if everyone hated me, I'm still loved. Even if I lose my job tomorrow, I'm still loved. Even if my family would have abandoned me, I have Christ. And when you have Christ, you truly do have everything. But when your worth and significance is rooted on your job, the fact that you're a mother, a parent, a father, you work, that you're a, a good student, you're righteous, you're moral, you're religious, when that is your significance, there is a dark emptiness of the soul that takes hold. So this family cynicism that Jesus faced, if he didn't have the incredible worth of being within the triune Godhead, within the community of Father, Son, Spirit, think about how he would have dealt with death threats and having your family reject you, your brothers scoff at you. Uh, let me just give a few side applications to this family cynicism that Jesus faced. If Jesus' own family was cynical towards who he was, then surely you and I might face the same cynicism from our own family when you trust in Christ. And I know some of you, maybe you're the only Christian in your whole family, or maybe in your whole extended family. No one else is a believer of Christ except for you. And so there can be a real sense of aloneness. Take heart, Jesus understands you, because that's exactly what he experienced. His own family rejected him. And so if you are experiencing that today, know that you are experiencing what Jesus experienced. So don't give up. Don't be discouraged. Be of good cheer. And don't give up on those family members who are the meanest to you, the most cynical, who scoff at you the most. Don't give up on them. Pray for them. You know why? Two of Jesus' brothers here who mocked him were writers of the New Testament. James, if you read James, that's Jesus' brother. Second is Jude, that's Jesus' brother too. One of these brothers who made fun of him, who scoffed him here in this passage. So I really wanna encourage you, don't give up on your family. Even if you're the only believer of Christ, pray to the Lord. If God can take someone like Saul who persecuted the church, becomes Paul, the greatest witness of the gospel, then he can change the most cynical heart within your family. Second, another hopeful encouragement through this passage is that if Jesus' own family who lived with him, saw him, interacted with him, did not believe in him, then do not be discouraged, parents, 
when your children do not trust in Christ. You can't change them. Now, I'm, I'm not saying you shouldn't have family worship and instruct and train, but Jesus said, and again, a reminder to you in John 6, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. I don't think any of us here are better than Jesus, more righteous, more moral. Unless the Father draws, we will not turn to Christ. So sometimes it can be so discouraging and perhaps even guilt-ridden. You feel as though, what did, I messed up. I, I didn't teach right. I didn't, I didn't lead my children well. I didn't have this time of worship with them. I didn't make them read the Bible enough. Those are good things, but they don't cause someone to actually be saved. And again, Jesus' family reminds us of that. So that's the second sort of picture of why Jesus is a man of sorrows. Lastly is, the world hated him. I mean, they really did. Verses 7 through 13, I want to give you a little context. So at this very moment is the end of the Feast of Tabernacles, or Sukkoth, or the Feast of Booths. They're all the same. And again, it's the reason why Hamas attacked on this day, because it's a great day of celebration. It comes from Deuteronomy chapter 16, verses 13 through 15. It was meant to celebrate this idea that God had rescued the people of Israel out of the desert, out of the wilderness. And the desert is a harsh, harsh place. If you've ever had the opportunity to go to, whether it's uh, the Nevada or Arizona desert or Death Valley, uh, when it gets hot, you cannot survive there. And it's remarkable how just, even if you were to, we were to have a picnic outside, I don't know if it's 90 to 100 degrees today, and just one tree providing that much shade can make all the difference. So what, the Israel, what God said is, when you enter into the promised land, I want you to build these booths. It's, it's like these little lean-to structures, and they actually do this in Israel today. So all over, they just build these structures. And you go under them, you have a party, and you, it's, it's meant to symbolize the fact that in the midst of the harshness, God is your shelter. He's your shade. He's your provider. He saves you. And he saved the people of Israel from the wilderness when there was no hope. And he provides once again with all sorts of everything that we have, all the food, all the water, all the shelter, everything that you need to live. And that's why this feast was truly a feast. It was a time of celebration, and it was meant to be celebrated fully. And so the brothers say, hey, you know what? If you really want to be popular, if you really want to be somebody, I think you should go to Jerusalem, the city, the great city, and on the day where everyone is crowding there, that's when you should show yourself to the world. But Jesus says in verse 6, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. Jesus is saying, when he's saying my time, he's meaning that time of the cross, the time where he's going to save his people. And it's not come yet, but for Jesus, he's saying your time, for the, you brothers, it's always here. And you know what that time is? It's the show yourself to the world time. It's this is how you operate. This is how you live. You live with always thinking about what everyone thinks of you, what the world thinks of you. You want to be popular. You want to be special. 
You want everyone to applaud you on your back and to pat you and say, great job. I want to admire you. You're my model and I love you and everything about you is so wonderful. Whereas for Jesus, he was hated. He was despised. People tried to kill him. His own family rejected him. If you want to fit into the world, all you need to do is just go with the flow. Do what everyone else does. But once you simply say, I am a believer of Christ, you don't even have to do or say anything. You don't have to preach to them. You don't have to tell them all the things that they're doing wrong. And that's, I think, sometimes what we Christians think will win the day. Just be kind, be merciful, be gracious, do good works, and people will say, I believe in Jesus. But this passage of Scripture shows us that's not the case. You can actually do all those things well, and still people will hate you. And you know why we know that to be true? Because it happened to Jesus himself. Think about it this way. If you were friends with a group of friends, whether it's in college, in school, in high school, or in college, everyone around you is foul-mouthed and causing all these problems, drunkards, drug addicts, and you were exactly like them, people are going to love you. They're going to say, you're my friend. I, I really appreciate you until you stop doing it. And if you stop because you believe in Christ, you don't have to even say anything to your, that group of friends. You just have to stop. And once you stop, they no longer want to be around you. You're, to put it nicely, a Debbie Downer. You're someone who you need to be away from us because you're a party pooper. More than that, they'll call you all sorts of names. They'll reject you. We know this because of verse 7. Jesus says, the world cannot hate you. And he's saying this to his brothers. The world cannot hate you because you're exactly like them. Of course they're not going to hate you. They're going to love you. You're exactly like them. But it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. Now, you're going to see throughout Jesus' life that he actually doesn't always testify the works being evil. He doesn't actually say that but he lives it. It's who he is. And you should see the fury that people have against him, enough to put him on that cross, the most horrific of all torture instruments. What did he do that was so evil that you would only do that to a mass murderer? That's what the cross was meant for, for under Roman rule, is mass murderers get the cross. Why in the world does Jesus get the cross? He didn't do anything. Because the more he showed just simply being moral, righteous, good, holy, the more people hated it and despised it. It's why it's so hard to be a Christian in this world. It's not because you have to always say the gospel. It's because you live it out. And when you live it out truly, consistently, John says this in 1 John 3.13, do not be surprised, my brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. And so his brothers go up to the feast, the feast that marks God's salvation, God's provision. And that's what good Jews do. But it's remarkable that they go to a feast that celebrates God's salvation and God's provision, 
And yet right before them is feast personified of God's provision and God's salvation. But they don't want that feast. Because in Christ, that means they can't do anything. They can't do anything about what it means to be righteous and good and holy. It means that they have to actually say, I am a sinner. I, I can't do it on my own. I am a failure on my own. I need Christ. I need his rescue. No, it's easier to say, I just want to go to the feast. And I'm, I'm here to say that it is so tempting for us to think, if I just go to church enough, maybe if you've ever come from a Roman Catholic background, if I just do penance enough, if I, if I take communion, that's all I need, and then God will be happy with me. If I'm, if I'm a good father, if I provide. Uh, this past week, I was at a national park, and right next to us was a uh, big RV. And I just looked over, and there was a father, and he had like a six-year-old son, and he was so angry with this son. I mean, he didn't hit him or anything, but he was just screaming at him, and I was thinking... First, I thought, oh, Lord, that was me, you know, a long time ago. <laughs> so it was like a humbling moment. And then I, th I looked around, and there was these mountaintops. And I thought, what a contrast. Here he is, and I'm imagining, he says, I'm going to take my family to this national park and see all this beauty. And as he's there, he can't see the beauty. All he sees is the sin. It's like, ah, going after him. And it. That's sort of the problem of our hearts. We can't see beauty because we're so cluttered with our own righteousness. How someone has invaded my life, my territory, whether it's a child, a coworker, the world. And Jesus says, you're missing out on beauty. You're missing out on all that I've done for you. Jesus is a man of sorrows because he knows we're gonna go through these things. And despite the hard road of the cross, it does not stop him. Because he wants you to know that no matter what, you are loved, you are saved in him, and nothing could ever take that away. So these little symbols of communion, coming to church on Sunday, reading scripture, prayer, it's always just reminders of that fact. We don't gain any righteousness, we're just reminded of who Christ is and what he has done. I don't know about you, but I need it as much as possible because I forget it way too quickly. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for these reminders that bring us to the greatest reminder of all, the cross of Christ, that show us that we cannot save ourselves. Our righteousness is not our own. We've been bought with a price. And thank you, Lord, for being a man of sorrows. You were despised so that we would never be despised before the Father. You faced full wrath of this world so that we would not face the full wrath of a holy and just God. And you paid this great price so that we can have life with you forever. I need that, and I know that some in here, all of us need that reminder again and again. 
We praise you. Thank you for this time. Thank you for this table. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.